Hello, new friends. If you've listened to the past couple episodes, then welcome back. If you're new here, then hi. Today, we're up to the fourth recap episode of Netflix's Drive to Survive. As per usual, during each recap, I will be going through what's happening in the episode and making some commentary. When you hear me say things like side note, sidebar, pit stop, or box, that means I want to go into some more detail about things I feel like they either missed, didn't explain well, or stuff that I was curious about. The episode we're going over today is titled The Art of War, and the description says, The troubled off-track relationship between Red Bull and Renault hits a new low. Meanwhile, a top Formula One driver makes a shocking move. I can only speculate that we'll see some more nasty words exchanged from Cyril and Christian as we saw a peek into the coming up real last time. And is the top F1 driver they're referring to Danny Rick? Or are they alluding to someone else we haven't met yet? Can't wait to find out. Uh, A little disclaimer, this episode has some cursing uh, a little heavier than the other episodes. But anyway, let's get into it. The fade into the episode begins with dark, dramatic music. We see clips of the empty paddock and then the full grid. Over this, Buxton explains that F1 apparently has been called the Piranha Club due to all the sniping and biting involved and that it's worse than swimming with sharks, supposedly. Horner cuts in to explain that due to the amount of money involved in this sport, what's going on behind the scenes is just as important as what happens on Grand Prix days, if not more. We see a bunch of scenes of the team bosses slash principals looking important, doing their quote-unquote busybody things, including Zach Brown and a choppa, Horner making a phone call, and my boy Gunther looking stressed AF. As Christian says the words cutthroat, we're treated to a fully awful clip of a Renault crashing into a McLaren and sending it flying. I mean, half the side of the car came off like this, like the skin of the car. Cyril tells us, if you want to be strong on track, you also need to be strong off track. Over a supposed to be intimidating clip of the new Ferrari crew standing arms crossed. The elusive Jean Haas's voice says that success in racing comes down to just being stubborn. A lot of your competitors will fall apart before you will. Over this scene is a few more team bosses looking distressed, including Cyril in a meeting, Toto and Claire watching a race, then a Renault just burning rubber, not in a good way. He goes off the track as their engine looks to be smoking. Yikes. Zach explains that politics are a big part of the sport and it can get pretty nasty, as I'm sure everyone in the world can agree on, especially in recent years if you've watched what's happening in the USA. Sigh. The principals give more, quote, advice and insight into the world of leading an F1 team, which makes the sport sound way less glamorous. More clips of cars crashing into each other or failing, and before the signature title sequence, we get an age-old piece of advice from Horner. If you can't take the heat, stay out of the kitchen. I roll. Luckily, today we're treated to another cool intro with all the cars' pit stops. Yay! Ends on a Ferrari, but they zoom away too fast to see who they've favored today. Then fade to black caption sequence over some gong music. And now we're back to June 2018. Eight races completed, 13 more to go. We're taken to Bedfordshire, England, which is apparently Red Bull Racing HQ. The first scene is of all past Red Bull cars in a room in front of massive photos of their drivers and the wins. Christian is giving us a tour. They have sweet photos of Seb's championship wins, Max's first victory, and Danny's first victory, of which we actually see a very short clip where Seb is spraying him down on the podium. How sweet. 
Horner goes on to tell us that what they've done in the last 15 years is pretty significant. Box, box. So at this point, uh, 15 years might sound like a long time in life, but in relation to the history of F1, Red Bull are basically babies. According to Formula1.com, Red Bull's first season was in 2005 with David Coulthard and Christian Klein as their drivers. Let's return now to the showroom and we see their first championship car. A clip of Sebastian Vettel in 2010 crossing the finish line to secure the driver's championship as well as the constructors. A slightly younger Christian is seen at the pit wall telling Seb over the radio how proud he is of him. Aww. And the whole team is just jumping and hugging each other. Back to the present, Horner continues on to tell us that this is the start of the dominant period in Red Bull Racing. Editing switches us to Christian's sit-down interview for him to say, We're an energy drinks manufacturer. We're the maverick in Formula One. We've won eight world championships. However, in the last few years, they've been lagging behind and they need to step it up as he continues to challenge the big teams. Then cue Ferrari and Mercedes on the podium. Let's do another quick stop at this point just to bring it all together. First, what the fuck is a maverick? Besides the nickname of the guy from Top Gun, according to the interwebs, this is an unbranded cattle or a term used to describe a person who acts free from constraints. So to use it in the term how I feel Christian really meant, Red Bull's the independent team, like not a car manufacturer slash company. So they're the outsider, but in a good way. Second, to clear up the eight world championships he's referring to, he means the four drivers plus the four constructors championship. Honestly, he had me confused and I had to Google their previous Sauber sponsorship to see if that's what he meant. Whoopsie. And we return to Christian blaming the engine as the issue, which we know is Renault. Then we see quite a few clips of frustrated drivers and team members during retirements. And then we're flown over to Paris, France, specifically following Cyril out of a building, maybe his apartment, and driving through the lovely streets of Paris. The background music is tense but nice violin buildup until he tells the cameraman in the front seat that a perk of working in F1 is being able to live in Paris. His narration comes in to explain that we, meaning Renault, are French and passionate. And apparently Renault is a partly state-owned company, which I didn't know. And he says, quote, it really belongs to the French people, end quote. And just from that, I feel like the pressure he must be going through is a lot. However, instead, he says it's a huge privilege. And you can just feel his good energy through the screen. I really hope that he stays a nice guy. Now we go into the Renault headquarters, and it's lunchtime. Anything from the trolley, dears? And Cyril brags that they have the best food in the factory and paddock because they're French. But back to serious business. Now we're in testing and development engineering room thing. They're running an engine from a stabilized Renault car. Cyril continues to explain to us that Renault is one of the few teams that make a Formula One engine. And they supply that engine to other teams. Hmm, interesting. Which is leading into the storyline Netflix has weaved about Red Bull not believing in their engines. Cyril says that getting the engine right is complicated because of all the components and that engine technology is very complex. Then he brings up the weird relationship that I realize as well. They're the supplier, but they're also the competitors. I still don't really get how that works, but it's fair in the sport to this day. Horner repeats that Red Bull is not an engine nor a car manufacturer, so they have to pay Renault for their service that they provide, aka the engine and that they have been with them for 12 years. Then he finally airs the grievance. They're not consulted with on any important decisions regarding the engine build or integration with their chassis. 
Quick box, uh, what is a chassis? Spelled C-H-A-S-S-I-S. By definition, means the supporting frame of a structure, in this case, of the F1 car. This doesn't include the body or the skin on which you see the sponsorships. It's the literal framework of the car. And Formula1.com explains it's the main part of a racing car to which the engine and suspension are attached. Now let's return. So if we're taking the Red Bull side right now, then at the minimum, that seems like an important part that they should or would be included in. Christian says it's an issue that they just have to accept whatever Renault wants to do. Switch to a meeting at Renault HQ with Cyril and others in which he says Christian is having, quote, very strong comments regarding performance. And that's all we hear from that meeting. From the sit-down interview, however, he says that the relationship is going to a crunch time, which I'm assuming he means like now or never situation, whether Red Bull's going to continue with Renault. He's confident that the engine is progressing and it can win races. Then he makes the biggest argument against Red Bull by stating that every win that they've had was with Renault. And, you know, he ain't wrong. We follow Christian in his private car where he tells the cameraman that they've had a love-hate relationship with Renault for 12 years and that they've fallen behind Ferrari and Mercedes, which causes tension in the relationship. At this point, I'm pretty sure he's directly talking about him and Cyril. Cyril then chimes in to say that Christian is controlling and that he has to get over it, basically. In short, Red Bull is like the little kid from TikTok that says, I'm tired of this grandpa. And Renault is the grandpa saying, you know, that's too damn bad. But these boys are basically super toxic. Then we hear the line from last episode's coming up. We've been paying to fly first class, but we ended up with an economy ticket. And that this year is super important, so they need to make a decision. Should I stay or should I go? And our cool globe graphic flies us over to Spielberg, Austria, home of the Red Bull Ring for race number nine. So it's their home race. As we're shown scenes of the track, the garage, and the paddock, there's a faint happy birthday with like polka music in the background playing. And then we see why, because it's Danny's birthday and they have a whole band singing to him. Um, side note, Danny Ricardo was born July 1st, 1989. Uh, so we're born the same year. Yay, 89 babies. The next scene is more quiet. He's sitting alone in his trailer on the phone with Gracie, who tells him happy birthday to have a good race and that she loves him, to which he responds, all right, gangsta. And you can tell that they have a really cute relationship. Moving on to Danny in a car ride singing a super family-friendly song, to which I shall repeat for you today. <laughs> I just want to tickle my scrotum and touch my nutsack. People would argue that they're the same thing maybe they are but scrotum is ticklish ticklish it is wow that was phenomenal the girl that he's sitting next to in the car a red bull team member laughs and said that was a good one this is forcing me to believe that he must have made up these beautiful songs all the time the car scene ends with Danny happily telling everyone that he woke up early because he was so excited that it's his birthday. Then we're taken to a very chaotic group of fans getting autographs, and they're all hanging over each other, shoving hats in his face for him to sign. Danny's narration kicks in over the pandemonium, letting us know that he's been with Red Bull since 2008, and that he's looking ahead to see, quote, who's doing what. You got to figure out who's going to dominate for the next, you know, one to three years, end quote. He finishes his signatures and gives a thumbs up to the crowd as he walks on stage to be introduced with Max, where he's presented with another birthday cake, this time a racing boot, just four sizes too big. 
The narration continues in a serious tone. He wants to put himself in the best car so he can see if he's really the best in the world and show what he believed that he's got. On that day, he's 29, and due to his age, this decision is going to be massive if he's going to ever be a world champion. And, you know, I agree. I mean, this is a sport where you can drive for a while, but you can't do it forever. As is with any sport, the older you get, the more room teams would rather make for younger drivers. Now we're following Christian out of the trailer and to the media ring. A young Red Bull lady is prepping him on Daniel's previous comments to the press, letting Christian know that he hopes to give an answer before the summer break. But the tone in his question before to her was interesting because he asked, was Daniel positive? So does Christian really want Daniel to say? I don't know. A faceless reporter then asked Horner straight out, you couldn't see any reason why Daniel wouldn't resign with you guys. That you were confident he would? Are you feeling more confident this week? And as I pause the scene to take my notes, Christian's glare is just icier than a glacier. I would not prefer to be on the receiving end of that. Horner responds that they're very happy with Daniel and they hope to retain him. That apparently he's a championship contender this year and he can't imagine him anywhere else. And in an interesting whiplash scene change, we're taken to the bright yellow red paddock. Cyril says how they're fourth and Red Bull is third, but let's be clear with that statement. Renault only has 62 points, whereas RBR has 164. Then Cyril throws shade, girlfriend. He says in his beautiful French accent, Red Bull is a great brand, but to drink. And then he smirks. He goes on to say that they're playing catch up and need to build the reputation of the brand as the one of the largest car makers in the world. Switch to the Red Bull garage. Christian, with similar sentiment, says that Renault cannot outperform them. And we see the drivers getting ready, looking at data. Then as Daniel's getting into his car and getting himself ready, he talks about the relationship with teammates. I'd like to preface this by saying that although this is over clips of him and Max, he doesn't necessarily say it's his particular relationship that they have. Anyways... Danny explains that teammates are super competitive, which naturally will create a rivalry and even friction and tension. Then we hear from Maxi's narration over an intense glare of him from the car with his helmet on, so you just see those serious blue eyes. He says, quote, My teammate, but also my biggest rival. I need to be the faster driver of the two. I hate to lose. End quote. Contrasting to Danny's smiling face on the other side of the garage, he continues to tell us that the contract discussions are putting more pressure on him. He needs to win in order to strengthen his negotiations, you know. He's got to look like a hot commodity. Then the real action begins as Max comes peeling out of the garage in slow motion and we hear the sick engine sound. More zoomy engines as the cars are all heading out of the pits now and lining up to the track. The background music is some strong drumming to further intensify and hype up the Austrian Grand Prix. The grid is getting set up with Max in fourth and Danny in seventh. The commentator lets us know that Danny really needs a win to stay in contention for the championship. Box, box. So at this point, Daniel actually has won two races, one that we didn't see in China, plus Monaco that we did see. He also has had two unfortunate DNFs, which I'm not sure if I've actually defined for you all, but DNF literally means did not finish. So like a crash or a car issue and they had to retire. Including other points from the races, he totals 96 points by this time. 
Some of the other top contenders at that point were Lewis with 145 points, Seb Vettel with 131, Valtteri with 92, and Kimi with 83, just to put it in perspective. With the points seeming to be so staggered, it seems improbable for Daniel, but as the famous saying goes, anything is possible in F1, hence their hope for him. We're back to his onboard camera and the starting red lights are lighting up one by one as you hear these engines just revving up. And they're off. As always, it's chaos on that first straight with all the cars weaving in front of each other and grappling into turn one. Max stays in fourth and Daniel manages to gain two places into fifth. Switch to the Renault onboard of Carlos Sainz and he just brushes into the back left tire of one of the pink Force India cars as a piece of their car goes flying right above the position of the camera and literally almost taking it out. The two drivers of both teams seem to be battling as Nico's Renault car starts smoking and then he's forced to retire on only lap 11. As Hulkenberg is pulling over, the engine smoke turns into fire and the staff is running to put it out. Then we see a quick clip of Cyril looking stressed as fuck, having taken his headphones off and aggressively rubbing his head as he quickly looks into the camera and looks away. Then we fast forward to a helicopter view of Danny coming up onto Kimmy on a straight. He pulls a classic overtake move, which is getting as close as possible to the back of the opponent's car, quickly pulling to the side of them and then zooming on past, which coincidentally puts him into third place at this point. Yay! The engineer tells Danny that Lewis is only 18 seconds ahead. So let's take a pit stop right here. <clears throat> a crash course on closing the gap. The cars are sending their pace data to the team in the garage every millisecond of this race. So let's say Lewis is keeping the same pace each lap at this time. But Daniel is picking up two seconds per lap, which means in nine laps, he can close that gap and overtake Lewis. I really hope that made sense because at first it sounds actually really far away, or to me, at least 18 seconds did, but it's entirely possible for him to catch that Mercedes, especially if there's a pit stop involved. So now let's get back to the race. And coincidentally, Lewis goes into the pit stops for a tire change. Now, pit stops can vary based on how quickly the team changes those tires and how long the pit lane is itself. Let's just pretend it's an average of 25 seconds total, and I'm including the driving in and out time down the lane. That means depending on the gap to the next driver, Daniel could pass Lewis before or while he's pulling out onto the track. While the background music is giving some more momentum to the scene, Daniel's engineer is telling him it's going to be close and to push. Literally as Danny is turning the corner at the end of the pit lane, Lewis is pulling out and he just falls one second behind. As quickly as we're on a high, if you're rooting for Danny, that is, the rug is then pulled right out from under us. Something fucking blows and the smoke is flying out of the rear of the car. Danny says to the radio that he's losing gear sync and the engineer responds that they're going to have to retire. It is lap 53 and he pulls over to safely get out of the car, but it's just so heartbreaking. I mean, what a shitty birthday, right? The commentator echoes my sentiment and maybe the viewer sentiment as well. Fast forward to the end of the race, the commentator then tells us that Renault's remaining car finishes 12th, so no points for them today, and Cyril again looks dejected as he takes off the headset. Back to Daniel as he's walking fully in helmet and overalls to the trailer. He narrates how frustrating it is that these things keep happening to him that are out of his control. 
It's just a sad scene now of him sitting in that same seat where he was just hours before talking to Gracie, wishing him luck and a happy birthday. And now he's looking like his puppy just died. The sick editors of Netflix replay that polka version of happy birthday quietly in the background as this kid looks like he's about to cry. Just to really drive home how shitty he's probably feeling. The scene abruptly ends and it cuts to black as the song ends as well. The next scene opens up to Christian in a car ride to who knows where, asking someone to schedule 30 minutes with Max to talk that week. His narration over the scenery says that there is progress with Daniel's contract discussions. Now he's talking directly to the cameraman or producer, whoever, from the backseat to say that Danny's only question is, can they compete with Merck and Ferrari next year? Which seems like it's the only thing that's holding him back. From what we've seen so far, and Christian's multiple bashings about their current Renault engine, it seems valid for Danny to be questioning that and the power unit itself. Whiplash scene change over to Cyril, talking to a horde of reporters surrounding him with their cell phones or little recording devices on a table. He tells everyone that basically that Red Bull talking shit is nothing new, but they haven't told Renault if they're going to get an engine from them or not. And Cyril is basically like, hurry up guy, you have a deadline or you're asked out. And at this point, he makes it seem like Renault has the upper power, you know, or like upper hand. Then Christian explains to the audience that Red Bull has a decision to make. Are they going to stay with Renault or find a manufacturer that will let them give some design input so the chassis can truly match the engine? The background music is slowly building up as he's saying all this to us and cut to black and then silence. Christian then tells the producer in a sit down that at 8 a.m. the next morning, they're announcing the split from Renault. Cue a stress-looking Cyril in the paddock. I mean, he always looks stressed, but this time, it's clearly about the news. The background narration is media explaining the breaking story of the split. One of the reporters says how Renault will be losing millions of dollars because of this, which I didn't even think about. And the reporter continues that he's in disbelief and Christian lost faith. Christian is walking out of their paddock and asks who is assigned to be in the conference. When told Cyril, he sarcastically says, great. In one of the better scenes of this entire show, Christian is walking up to the entrance of the press building. And since the camera is behind him, we see it's towards a bunch of yellow shirts, including Cyril, and the Sauber team principal, Frederick Vasseur, who looks like a Disney villain, but I cannot think of who, and it'll come to me one day. Christian first shakes Vexer's hand and greets him. And Cyril basically turns his back to Horner, which just makes me fucking laugh and cringe at the same time. Oh my god, this man is so petty and so French. It makes me love him even more. It seems like they're not going to talk, but then everyone else clears out and gives him space. It's the most awkward 12 seconds of my life. And yes, I counted because I had to know how long this silence was. Cyril does like this breathy laugh as he's leaning against the wall like <laughs> with his hands behind his back and then Christian does one smirk back. Both of them like middle school children who just like fighting over a girl or something. It's it's amazing. Horner ultimately breaks the silence and asks if the head honchos are going to be around this weekend and Cyril responds a few and then lets out a large laugh as if to say like what the fuck do you care because now I look like an asshole. Then, unfortunately, we're not treated to the rest of the tension-filled conversation as they head inside for the conference. There's a bunch of camera clicks on top of low background music drumming away to build up the next scene. 
Christian speaks first and he says that they've been following Honda's development. So now we know who they've chosen instead. By the way, the sitting order facing the guys is Christian, Cyril, and Zach. The media love to make them sit next to each other, especially when they're feuding. As he continues talking about their decision, the camera is focused on Cyril's reactions, and he does not hold back. He is not a stoic man. He is sarcastically smiling, putting his head down, and even rubbing his face during all of this. Christian even accuses Renault, the company, of being selfish and that their priority is their own team. Then a reporter asks Cyril of Renault's feelings on the situation. And the first reply is basically that Red Bull's money ain't shit and that they'll be fine and that was a marginal part of their budget. Petty ass Christian is now throwing his hands wide, signaling that it was actually a wide part of their budget. Yikes. The way these Toxicos fight is giving me life. Unfortunately, we don't see the rest of the conference and we're just left with Christian's signature petty smirk. As they're walking out of the auditorium, Horner says to an assistant, that was juicy, wasn't it? Like, haha, you're so funny. I'm sure he's like thriving on this drama. And then they have to do even more press. Immediately, they're taken outside to the media ring or box, actually. And they're both asked about the, quote, marriage ending. And by the way, they're standing like 20 feet away from each other, back to back, facing against each other. Christian relates the situation to like being together only for the kids and that they had to move on with Honda, who will be the better path. Cyril conversely says that he'll be personally sad because that was 12 years of dealing with Christian in his life. <laughs> Man, I told you that these guys had some sexual tension. I mean, haha, just kidding, but like slightly. Now Netflix do the back and forth commentary with these guys and whomever them they're talking to in the media. Christian goes, Renault was still very keen to have us. They were desperate even until last week. And then Cyril goes, we feel now that we don't need Red Bull anymore. Christian, we're still relying on Renault now in our current season. Then a reporter asks Cyril, how can you promise them that the performance level will be as high as possible? But we're not treated with the answer yet. Cut across to the lot, Christian is asked what Daniel thinks of the decision. He responds, I think he sees the data we're looking at, and it's a no-brainer. Reporter, so it boosts your chance of retaining him? Christian, I would think so, absolutely. And both principals then say their goodbyes and thank yous. Now Netflix weaves their storyline back in, and we get an artist overhead shot of a very tall circular staircase of which Mr. Ricardo is trudging his way up. Next, he's talking to Glenn Beavis about wanting another tattoo and that he wants to win a championship so that it can represent that. He continues that even though there's all this contract talk, winning is the main thing, the top of the list. He wants to be somewhere he can win. He says he also needs to be in a happy environment to be able to win. So I wonder if he's implying that Red Bull isn't a happy environment? Hmm? Glenn says that they have interest from other really good teams, but it's about making the correct overall choice. Glenn's narration says to us that him and Daniel were surprised when Max actually announced the extension because that meant they were focused on having the youngest world champion and that, quote, those things aren't lost on us. Then we get the sweet globe graphic and we're flying on over to Budapest, Hungary. It's race number 12 at the Hungaro Ring, which I truly love that track name. So we've actually skipped races 10 and 11. Then let's box at this point, shall we? So what did we miss? Uh, those races were Great Britain, aka the historic Silverstone Circuit, which Seb won, and then Germany, which Lewis won. 
Since we're focused on the Red Bull storyline, let's see how they did. In England, Danny finished fifth and Max DNF'd. Then in Germany, Max finished fourth and Danny DNF'd, which both of these results are not a help to the Constructors' Championship. Ouch. Now back to Hungary, which is beautiful as we see a couple city shots of Budapest and then back to the track. There's no pre-race fluff this time, just straight to race weekend where we see all the drivers and crew getting ready straight to the grid. Christian's narration comes in and he basically calls Cyril emotionally unstable as we see a serious looking Cyril on the pit wall. Then over a clip of Christian, Cyril says that Red Bull comments have crossed the line. We're switched very quickly to the race start and no countdown this time. They're just off. Max started fifth and in the first turn he picks up two places. Switch to Danny's on board and his front left tire gets aggressively bumped by Sauber driver Marcus Erickson. Daniel says he's not sure if there's damage, but the car's pace seems to slow and now he's back to 16th place. In a determined tone, he says no fucking way he keeps that place, referring to the Pink Force India car of Sergio Perez ahead of him. And true to form, he starts overtaking those cars ahead. First the Force India, then the two McLarens, then the two Renaults, and he puts himself in seventh place spectacularly. However, further up the track, we switch to Max as he loses power from the engine, and he is pissed off, of course. As the engineer tells him to stop the car, he says, I don't fucking care if this engine blows up, fuck it. And he's finally on the grass to pull over, and he yells again, fuck, what a fucking joke all the time with this shit, honestly. And a clip is shown of Christian just shaking his head in frustration. Daniel's now their only hope, and on board again, he's just told that he had the quickest lap. Another overtake past Magnussen in the Haas, then a Toro Rosso, then Bottas in the Mercedes in front of him. It looks like he's almost got it, but Valtteri defends himself, pushing Daniel towards the outside of the track. As they round the corner, there's hard contact as Bottas crashes into Danny. What the fuck? Debris goes flying, and Daniel's pushed off the track into the runoff. Somehow he did not retire, and as he drives back onto the track by some miracle, there is a chunk of the right side of that car body missing. But Daniel just keeps flying down the circuit. Now it's the last lap, and he's caught up to Bottas again. Can he overtake? Ugh. It looks like it, and this time he goes on the inside of the turn perfectly to get past and send Valtteri a nice wave of his middle finger once he's past him. Alas, uh, this was a fight for fourth as Lewis won 46 seconds ahead of Danny. Considering he started 12th and almost crashed out, that is truly a spectacular drive from Danny. Netflix plays some triumphant music in the background as the post-race scenes play from the Red Bull garage. Danny's narration tells us, quote, it's just a good feeling when you know you've done your best, knowing I've still got it and proving it to people. The commentator tells the audience that, unfortunately for Renault, they finished 9th and 12th, which is just widening the gap even more to Red Bull to the constructors by over 100 points. Before the scene switches, we see a very quick drone shot of the grandstand of fans running onto the track to see the podium celebration, which I truly hope I could also do one day. Now we're back to Renault and HQ, where Cyril is giving an update slash pep talk to the staff. He lets everyone know that since the competition is getting better, they have an increase in the budget for next year, so they can change and get better as well. To the producer, in a narration, he expresses his feelings of wanting Renault to be respected, and that they will not be intimidated. 
Now, I'm not really sure what he means by that. Does he mean like intimidated by the winning teams or to be discouraged? Not 100% sure. But that scene is over with him contemplating alone in his office. Instead, now we're taking to Monte Carlo, Monaco. Side note, this is where a lot of the drivers live, as I've come to learn. However, Charles Leclerc is the only actual native of Monaco. We join Danny Rick in what I presume to be his apartment. His narration is a slightly worried or stressed tone with a little bit of pensiveness. He was on holiday for two weeks, and now he's really contemplating the contract negotiation and what he's going to do. Red Bull's telling him that they're sure next year's going to be great, but he says Honda hasn't proven themselves yet, so he just really doesn't know. Flying over to Valencia, España, where Glenn Beavis is, he tells the interviewer that Daniel would not be in the position he is without Red Bull, which does grant loyalty, and you have to be respectful of that. That's all we get from him, as the magic of Netflix flies us over to Buckinghamshire, England, where we hear gunshots in the distance, randomly. At a shooting range, we find Christian Horner laughing it up and talking with five other old white guys, one of whom asks him how the season is going. Christian replies that it's going really well and that they've won three of the nine races so far. Box, box. Let's just remind ourselves of where we are in time, people. We just saw race 12 ending, but he's talking about three races ago. So for them, they're at the beginning of July. And if Daniel was talking about being on vacation for two weeks, then he's talking to us in August. Anyway, let's proceed back. There's more bang, bang and shooting. Kristen's narration says that Daniel's contract has actually been talked about since preseason, which means December to February, and that he's confident they'll, quote, get things resolved. We get a throwback clip of what seems to be Daniel when he first joined actual Red Bull team, since he looks like a child in those dark blue overalls. The background music chimes in, very soothing and angelic-like, if that makes sense, over more cool scenes of Daniel's early days of racing. We see both younger Danny and Christian during this heartwarming triumph, and it's really sweet, actually. Christian's narration continues over these nostalgic segments. I've thoroughly enjoyed watching his development over the last 10 years. He's come through the ranks as a member of the junior program, and as soon as he got into Red Bull Racing Car, he never stopped overtaking people. Seven Grand Prix victories and over 20 podiums, all retrieved in Red Bull Racing Cars. Personally, I view him as a good friend. And before the scene changes, we see them embracing tightly and smiling at each other. The view is now the gorgeous Monaco Harbor, the old bedrock with a small roadway carved out next to the modern mega yachts of the millionaires that live there. The cameraman is following Danny during a run down the ancient looking walkways. His voiceover tells us that he's trying to negotiate with Red Bull and that he was loyal with them up until now. He's now stopped on the side. He's looking over a guardrail into the sea, seemingly contemplating life. His voice continues to say that apparently a deal with Red Bull is right in front of him and all he has to do is sign on that dotted line. But, hmm, what if he breaks free and makes a statement instead? He's been with Red Bull since he was around 18, and now he has a chance to walk into a team as an adult. To the cameraman watching him stand on the rail's edge, Danny says, My heart's going. Netflix, for dramatic effect, plays a heartbeat tone, and we see a close-up of the water below from the height that Daniel's at. He smiles at the camera in slow motion, and we find out that he has decided to join Renault for 2019. Then he leaps right into that water and comes up laughing. He continues on to explain that he was frustrated and that he needed something different to challenge himself and have a fresh start. Then he floats away and we fade to black. Let's pause right here because 
I did not see that coming. Did you? I mean, this episode, we've basically seen a bitter rivalry between Renault and Red Bull, not only in the championship, but regarding that engine drama. Renault hasn't been looking too great as a team, and I am so surprised that Daniel went there, honestly. It's a little bit of a slap in the face to Christian and Red Bull, if you ask me, but I guess we'll see everyone else's reaction soon. The globe graphic fades and we're taking to Spa Francochamps, Belgium, or Spa for short, which is lucky race number 13. Now we're in Christian's car and the radio is on. Whomever is speaking is announcing that Daniel is moving to Renault and that Red Bull was definitely not expecting that. Daniel pulls into a track garage and his company, Aston Martin, that has a nice big Red Bull logo on the side. He's talking to a team assistant about not sneaking in through the paddock and taking it on the chin, assuming he's talking about the press. But he's actually able to walk into the paddock just fine without being attacked. Then it's time for the team principal's press conference. And Christian runs into Cyril beforehand. In another wonderful petty move, Cyril shakes his hand and the first thing he says is, he needs a driver and an engine, and laughs in Christian's face. And now at first, I thought he was talking about Daniel and I was like, wait, hold on, that doesn't make sense. So what I think he's talking about is just repeating back something Christian must have said in the press about him recently and is now laughing in his face because he stole his driver. Christian, just as petty, replies, have you got any money to spend on your engine now that you spent it all on your driver? Cyril says they've got plenty of money and the two walk into the building for the conference. Then we're in the trailer with Daniel and the same assistant as he's signing mini Red Bull helmets and flyers for fans. He tells her that the atmosphere feels super eerie and weird, but that he thinks it's going to be a good and exciting move. Back to the press conference, seated front left to right is Cyril, McLaren's team principal Eric Boulier, and then Christian. The first question we hear is, of course, about the move for Horner. The reporter asks if there's added frustration about the change since Daniel's going to an organization that Christian has been publicly critical of. Christian, looking uncomfortable, says that it was a surprise, of course, especially since they offered him a deal with everything he wanted, including financially. As he's talking, Cyril is now smirking directly into the Netflix camera. This man gives me life. But then he looks down and he's not trying to look too smug. Horner continues that if Daniel's comfortable looking in the mirror with the decision that he's made, then you have to respect it. Cyril responds on the same subject, letting everyone know that they had been joking around on a move like this with Daniel for a while, and then drives the knife into the heart of Christian very assuredly. Renault can afford pretty much anything. Renault is the largest car maker in Formula One. Full stop. He bought into the project and made his decision. This aggressiveness earns some smiles from the press, and as he finishes, he glances over at Christian again. End scene. Over at the Renault camp, we see Carlos signs on the phone and a reporter voice saying that with Daniel coming in, Carlos is now losing his seat. Aw, sad face. Let's box, quickly, and see some background of where Carlos was driving before. From 2015 to 2017, he was on the little sister team of Red Bull, Toro Rosso. But at the very end of the 2017 season at the United States Grand Prix, he replaced Renault driver Jolion Palmer, and Daniel Kvyat took Carlos's place at Toro Rosso. Signs then continued with Renault for the rest of the season, and he signed on for 2018. Now back to the Renault paddock, and it seems like a really sad sight. 
Carlos looks dejected, as well as his cousin slash manager, who we met in episode two. Carlos and the PR team are discussing the upcoming press conference, and he awkwardly asks, what do they want him to say or not say? One of the guys says, just say that your focus is on the races coming up and on winning. And another girl jokes that she wants him to cry and say that he's going to miss them, to which he jokingly replies, I'll try. Then he's done and he says goodbye and he walks out. The next view is Danny still signing Red Bull merchandise in his trailer. His voiceover explains that it's going to be awkward with the team from now on and that he expects to be isolated, which is kind of sad to be honest. I mean, you spend years with a team and then just having them ignore you is pretty harsh. Beavis chimes in to say that some people are shocked by the decision, but it comes down to where you feel wanted. And then we see him talking to Cyril in the rental camp. He lets us know that there was a private meeting where Reynolds told them what their future plans are and that they saw, quote, the might of a manufacturer, end quote. And of course, the ultimate goal being a world championship team again. Horner's voice pops in and rhetorically asks, is he making the right career choice? In the end, my assumption is he was running from a fight. That's the way it feels to me. This narration is over a scene of the Red Bull team in their garage getting ready for the race. Danny's leaning against the wall by himself, looking pensive and lonely. Meanwhile, on the literal other side, we see Max whispering excitedly with an engineer and laughing. Christian continues, always look ahead. Our goal is not just to beat Renault. Our goal is to try and be world champions. Then one last stare from afar into the camera and scene fade to black. Very quickly and shockingly, the coming up reel plays, but it's old clips of race cars crashing violently. Charles Leclerc's voiceover is saying, it's a very dangerous sport and it always will be. Then Marcus Erickson says, confidence level goes down when you have a crash like that, which might mean like added fear, but not totally sure what he meant. Next is a news clip saying F1 driver Jules Bianchi has died at age 25, and we see this handsome boy smile at the camera. Buxton, or I think it's his voice, explains that Bianchi's godson Charles Leclerc made his F1 debut this year. Then we see an old photo of little Charles with his Justin Bieber haircut and Jules with his arm around his shoulder. Next clip switches to Charles now, and he has also grown up to be a handsome young man just like his godfather. Journalist Chris says that the bigger teams are now putting their faith in younger drivers. And there's a clip of Charles making a nice overtake on a Haas in his Sauber. Someone else's voice who we don't know comes in to say that it's hard for Marcus to take. And if that wasn't clear who he's talking about, he's referring to Charles's teammate, Marcus Erickson. In Charles's sit-down interview clip, he says that it's his dream to drive for Ferrari. Then another mystery voice says that Charles is on a mission to do what Jules should have done. And all of this reel is over very sentimental violin music, so it's like really tugging at my heartstrings right now. Charles' story is so sad, and I can't wait to see how he does or where he ends up. And now it's really the end of the episode. So please excuse my terrible accents. I thought it'd be nice to try it out. As always, thank you so much for joining another exciting episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and please keep following along into episode five. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the real drivers of Formula One and feel free to DM me with your thoughts. I also have an email address, the real drivers of F1 at gmail.com to send in questions, comments, whatever your little heart desires. 
So depending on where you are in the world, good morning. And in case I don't hear from you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, my new friends. Mm-hmm.